When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. Today, we're going to take another step towards explaining America by talking with David Rubenstein. He's a noted philanthropist, a history buff, and now the host of a new PBS series titled Iconic America. David Rubenstein, a very warm welcome back to Washington Post Live. Thank you very much for having me back. I was fortunate enough to have a sneak preview of several shows in your series, which launches tonight on PBS. And David, I wanted to ask you, What's the intent of this series? And what were the ideas behind it? How was it conceived? Well, um, the idea is to educate people about American history. It's generally been my view that Americans don't know enough about their history. And the theory of history, and the study of history, is that you learn from the mistakes in the past or the good things in the past, and you make uh, improvements on the good things in the past, and you avoid the things that you did wrong. So Americans right now have a relatively modest uh, uh, appreciation of American history. And young people are not learning history very much. Just something like 2% of college uh, students today are majoring in history, down from about 10% many, many years ago. So we are really obsessed with STEM education. STEM education is great, but history can teach you a lot as well. And what we try to do with this series is to take eight iconic American symbols and say, here is what you know about them a little bit, but here's what you should know about them, the good and the bad, with the idea of wetting the appetite of the viewers so they might go back and learn more about these symbols, but also learn more about American history because they'll find other symbols that they might want to know more about. So, David, I think you'd start tonight with, with Fenway Park at the risk of alienating some Yankees fans. Um, but you'll be talking about the Gadsden flag, the Don't Tread on Me flag, uh, the Statue of Liberty, and some, some, some very big and important American symbols, the Hollywood sign included. What's the throughway? What's the common thread through the places you picked and how did you pick them? The common thread through all of these is that we know little about these symbols compared to what we should know because we don't know much about the history. We've ignored the history. As an example, the Statue of Liberty had nothing to do when it originally conceived with welcoming immigrants to the United States. It was a sign of Franco-American uh, friendship and really designed to thank America for ending slavery. Uh, that's what it was all about. Um, the Hollywood sign is not really designed to um, tell you about Hollywood and the making of movies. It was really a land development site. It used to be called Hollywood Land, and they were trying to sell houses on that site, and they ultimately took the land part off. So it, it teaches you more about the symbols and the history and the, and the good and the bad. For example, the Gadsden flag, which says, don't tread on me. Well, that was conceived by Christopher Gadsden, a South Carolina uh, revolutionary fighter who was also a prominent uh, slave owner. He ultimately came up with the idea for this flag, and it was used to say to the British, don't tread on me, leave us alone. Ironically, people who are now against our government, not a foreign government, are using the same flag in protest at January 6th or things like that. 
I'm just fascinated by this this evolving use of symbolism, but I'm not the only person who gets to ask questions today. We have a wonderful question coming from one of our viewers that I want to ask you right now. It comes from Kathleen Pegg in Virginia, who asks, who or what inspired your curiosity and passion for history and the arts? A personal question there and a great one from Kathleen Peggs. Well, like any question, um, there's probably multiple answers. I, I did work in the White House when I was a very young man from the age of 27 to 31. And when you work in Washington, D.C. and you work at the White House, you do get a sense of history. And I've lived in Washington for the ensuing 40 plus years. And so I'm surrounded by history all the time um, in uh, the arts. I think that arts are something that shows you the apogee of the human brain and it shows you what people can achieve. Picasso in the arts or Shakespeare in writing or or uh, Beethoven in, in music and just appreciate what humans can do uh, when, when they put their brain towards creating something really wonderful is something that I enjoy. And I also enjoy the fact that the arts brings people together. Uh, in the Kennedy Center, for example, when people leave a show there, they don't cry, they generally are happy. And, and also it tends to eliminate some of the partisanship we often see in Washington. So I like the arts for that reason. One of the shows that I did get to watch was about the Gadsden flag. And there's a fascinating history there. And I'd love to just show a clip now to give our viewers a sense of, of these very, very varied symbolic meanings behind the flag. One of America's most well-known symbols is being blasted as racist. It absolutely has been hijacked, but it always has been. Like any cultishly popular symbol, everyone's going to reappropriate it for their own purposes. The Gadsden flag can represent America in the independent pride and everything, and, and, and yet be divisive at the same time. It was just this contrast, this conflict that was just a part of how we created this nation. I don't view it as a political flag. It's a war flag, in my opinion. It has to do with the race, but it's aimed at the government. This is a symbol of hate. There's no redeeming it anymore. One city council member said that this flag, which was presented by Colonel Thomas Gadsden of the Continental Army and the Continental Congress to the Congress in 1776, was like the Nazi flag. At the end of the day, flags want to bring about reactions. And that's what the Gadsden flag is doing still. Oh, wow, what a summary at the end there. But David, uh, you spoke to one of my colleagues, I know, for a story when you talked about the process of learning history and real realizing how little you know along the way. So tell me a little bit about the personal experience of learning about that flag. Well, I didn't know that much about it. Uh, obviously, every American knows the, the red, white, and blue. And we know that we have 50 stars in the flag to symbolize the 50 states and 13 stripes to sim symbolize the original 13 colonies. And flags are symbols. What is a flag? It's a piece of cloth, but it's a symbol of other things. Every country has its own flag. Many organizations have their own flag. It's a way of, in a short way, saying, I am an American, if you're waving the American flag, or we even pledge allegiance to the flag, or things like that. The Don't Tread on Me flag was designed to say to the British, leave us alone. We want our rights, and we want the rights that we were promised when our colonies were set up, and you're taking those rights away by taxing us or putting troops here and things like that. So you could argue that it was a flag that was a symbol for people trying to get freedom from the British. Now, ironically, our own government, with the government that was created after the Revolutionary War, is the one that people are now saying, don't tread on me as to them, as to that government. And so the irony is that the flag has been used a bit by people who are now against the same government that was created 
when the, when the flag was first put together. So it's somewhat ironic. It's somewhat unfortunate too, because many times people who are using the don't tread on me flag now, I think are often doing so for, for reasons that I think may not be in the real public interest. But David, step back a little bit for me on this. What is the importance or significance of a flag and other very central system symbols to a country that's really based on ideas and ideals rather than ethnicity or even shared borders necessarily? Well, this country was created on a very novel concept, a representative democracy, very novel, hadn't been done in, in centuries. And it was allowed the, the American people, at least Christian male property owners were allowed to vote. That was a step forward from, from other governments in Europe and so forth, but it obviously wasn't what we want and what we have today. Uh, so, uh, but the concept of creating out of whole cloth a new country was a novel concept. And we had the most famous sentence in the English language that was used to really inspire the country. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator, with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You could argue that, that from Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence is the creed of our country. Now, we've been trying for hundreds of years to live up to the creed, but that's the creed. Now, those, are, those are ideas. But you can symbolize those ideas with a very simple picture or a very simple flag. So a flag, the American flag, is designed to symbolize everything the United States represents, the good and the bad, you could argue, but certainly most people would say the good. And the don't tread on me flag is designed to symbolize uh, a, a fight against oppression. We used it initially in this country to fight against the British as a sign of, of oppression. Now it's being used by people in this country who are not happy with the current government and use it as a, a symbol of oppression that the current government is putting on them. You talk, and, and, and then that clip, we saw people talk about co-opting these symbols. And there is probably more than almost any other time a battle now going on over history, how we read history, how we look back at our past. If you said, what do you make of it? Why is it happening right now? And do you hope your show is going to somehow counteract the polarized sides of that battle? Well, I don't think I can solve all problems by, with the, the series. I, I am trying in many ways to educate people more about history. And one of the things I'm trying to do is I buy historic documents like the Declaration of Independence or the Emancipation Proclamation or fix the Washington Monument or Monticello or Mount Vernon. Why do that? Well, the truth is you can see what's in the Declaration of Independence on a computer slide. You can see what Mount Vernon looks like on a computer slide. But the human brain has not yet evolved to the point, fortunately, where seeing something in person is the same as seeing on a computer slide. So if you go to visit Mount Vernon or the Washington Monument, you're likely to read about it before. You're going to get a curator to tell you about it when you're there. You're more likely to be inspired to read about it after you go. Whereas if you just push a button on a computer slide, you might not learn as much. So what I'm trying to do is preserve history to remind people of the good and the bad in the, in the past and hope that they get inspired to learn more themselves. Again, we need to have an informed citizenry if we're going to have as good a government as the founders wanted us to have. So that, that's the point of it, really. So let's talk about another a, a monument that probably has more symbolic importance for immigrants than any other in the country, the Statue of Liberty. You referred earlier on to its uh, evil, the evolution and its meaning and how it's really now become associated with a poem on it rather than its original intent. Tell us, tell us more about that. How did that happen? The, stat the Statue of Liberty was conceived by a number of French uh, people who thought it would be a nice thing of a gift to the United States to symbolize Franco-American friendship. 
But one of the reasons they were inspired to do it is because the United States had eliminated slavery. Slavery had previously been eliminated in France. So it was both a symbol of Franco-American uh, friendship, but also a symbol of, of eliminating slavery and a thank you for doing that. And in fact, in the original designs for the, for the Statue of Liberty, uh, Lady Liberty has chains around her that symbolize the chains that slaves had. And as the, uh, as the statue got further and further developed, the chains fell from around the body to the foot, but they were still there to symbolize the chains that had been broken. Now today, most people wouldn't know about that. Most people would say the Statue of Liberty is in New York Harbor to welcome immigrants. It had nothing to do with welcoming immigrants in the beginning. Mm -hmm. It took on that role later when Emma Lazarus's poem about welcoming of poor people to the United States was later put at the foot of that, um, that statue. And also, as people came in from Europe principally, and they came by boat, they typically would go past the Statue of Liberty to get to Ellis Island where they were processed. So it took on the symbol of immigration, the welcoming to our country of immigrants, but that was not the original intent. And we're now again at a moment of intense uh, political battling over immigrants and their worth in this country. Can you talk to me a little bit about the importance of immigration economically to this country? This country has 330 million people. Uh, we have 50 million immigrants. Not all of them are citizens, but 50 million immigrants. No country in the world is close to that. Uh, that uh, the, the second most uh, uh, immigrants in any country is Germany with 5 million. And many of them came uh, after the Syrian uh, uh, wars and wars in the Middle East. They came as political refugees, practically. So why are people coming here? Why are 50 million immigrants in this country? And why are most people in this country descended from immigrants? Well, that's because this country was seen as a welcoming beacon for people that had problems elsewhere. And so we welcomed them. Listen, my ancestors were welcome when they came in in the early part of the 20th century. So immigration has been an important part of this country's success because we, we wouldn't have the population we have or the entrepreneurial spirit or the creative genius we have without immigrants. Many of our most famous entrepreneurs and, and educators and, and uh, academics and many people who have been great, great businesses are, are people who are immigrants. Talk to me a little bit more about this special alchemy, your own perspective on what it is about America that makes this, you know, or breeds this entrepreneurship and welcoming to immigrants to allow them to, to flourish here and economically. In 1936, the phrase was invented, uh, the American dream. And the American dream was designed to symbolize the idea that you could work your way up from very modest circumstances to rise up to the top of society. When I was a little boy in Baltimore, my parents were blue collar workers. I more or less believed in the American dream uh, and I, I worked my way uh, up to where I am today. But I, I'm not sure that there's an equivalent Chinese dream or Bulgarian dream or Ethiopian dream. Maybe there is, but nothing is quite as well known as the American dream. Sadly, in this country today, many people do not believe in the American dream anymore because they believe that for socioeconomic reasons, if you're born in a poor family and you have, let's suppose you're black or, or Latino, you may not be able to rise up beyond your circumstances. Many people feel that way. Ironically, the American dream is believed more now by people that don't live in this country. And more and more people are coming to this country because they believe in the American dream. Why would they be coming here? That's why they, they believe they can rise up from modest circumstances and become something successful with their life. So in 2020, I think the Boston Consulting Group did a study that suggested that Canada is now a more desired uh, place than America as a, as a destination. Does that concern you? 
Well, I have to see who paid for the BCG report. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, if Canada paid for it, I wouldn't be surprised. But I'm sure you can get a lot of consulting reports that will tell you what you want to hear. Um, Canada is a wonderful country. Uh, my firm invests there. I travel there a lot. We have great relationships there. But it's a modest-sized country relative to the United States and doesn't attract as many um, people uh, who are coming to, to build businesses or, or restart their life as the United States does. So, you know, if you can't get into the United States for a lot of reasons, go to Canada. I think my my forebears on my father's side could not get a visa to come into the United States initially. So they went to Canada before they could get a visa to come down to the United States. And many times that happens. You see people have gone to Canada uh, for a while and Canada was more welcoming and, and after World War II than the United States was. And so people ultimately migrate here. But I think generally, if you ask most people around the world, if they had a choice to go to Canada or United States as a place to immigrate, I suspect most would say the United States. Should we make it easier for immigrants to come to this country? I think we should for a number of reasons. The most famous uh, entrepreneurs very often come from immigrant families. Uh, uh, as we now know, Steve Jobs' parents were immigrants. Um, we now know that, uh, or of course, Andrew Carnegie was an immigrant. Uh, many of the uh, most talented uh, business leaders, Andrew Grove, others were immigrants in this country. Many of the great educators in our country were immigrants. Now, uh, one of the reasons uh, our, our, we need immigrants is not only you get people with fresh ideas and a willingness to work hard and a willingness to, to really do things that I think can make a country good, but also helps with the population growth. In any country, a, a women of childbearing age, if they have less than 2.1 children per average woman, uh, the population will go down ultimately, which is probably not a good thing for a country. In the United States, women of childbearing age, on average, produce 2.1 children. But that would produce a population that's exactly the same. We have, uh, the population can grow only if we have immigration. In recent years, we haven't been having very much immigration. And as a result of that, many people in this country are finding it's hard to get uh, people to do certain kinds of jobs, which often immigrants do. Uh, and so we, are, we have a labor shortage, honestly, in the United States. I think we should be more welcoming to people and not uh, worry about where they exactly they came from. The immigration laws in this country didn't exist in most of this country's history. We, anybody could show up. There were no visas, no passport requirements, nothing like that. It wasn't until uh, people from Eastern Europe, people many of whom were Jewish, who started coming in the late part of the, of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, that people got alarmed that we weren't going to be as homogenous a population as we uh, some people wanted us to be. And so in 1925, legislation was created that essentially have, had limits on who can come into this country and very strict quotas on people from Eastern Europe and China and, and Asia and so forth. We, we got rid of that law in 1965 and, and made a much more uh, welcoming law, but now it's not being implemented quite the way I think we should. And one of the reasons I think is that immigrants, when they come in, very often immigrants are now thought to be, by some people, likely Democratic voters. And I think mm -hmm. some people on the Republican side say, well, if we have all these immigrants in, that's going to create more voters for the other party. And that's one of the reasons why we haven't gotten the DACA legislation resolved or any immigration of any consequence in the last dozen years or so. It's very, very political now. David, I want to ask you as well about how America projects its image overseas. And there's probably no better way than Hollywood, quite literally, of, of showing America. What's the role? You have a whole you have a whole program about the Hollywood sign, which you referred to earlier on. But what is the role of Hollywood in America's soft power and promoting its image overseas? 
Well, for decades, uh, most of the uh, entertainment that came out of the United States went, that went around the world was, was motion picture theaters before the advent of television and so forth. If you wanted to know what was going on in the United States and you lived overseas, you typically would watch an American movie. And many of the American movies, ironically, were uh, made by studios headed by immigrants. Uh, in fact, I think most of the major studios were headed by, by immigrants uh, in the early part of the 20th century or so. So the image of, of America came to be known around the world largely through American movies. Ironically, the Hollywood sign that is so well known and the, the symbol to some people around the world of Hollywood uh, is miscast in some ways. It was really called Hollywood Land. It was a Hollywood Land was the name of a company that was selling homes in the Hollywood Hills. And to attract people to come to those homes, as opposed to competitors' homes, they put up a big sign, in effect, saying, come to buy a home at Hollywood Land. Eventually, when all those homes were sold, uh, the land part went down. Hollywood, as we probably all know, is not the place where movies were made. They tend to typically be made in Burbank or other parts of, of Los Angeles. They're not really made in Hollywood. If you go to Hollywood itself, Hollywood proper, you see Grauman's Chinese Theater and a lot of T-shirt shops and so forth, but there are no movies are actually being made there. David, a quick question, sort of overview question about making this series. Did it confirm your views of America or did it change your perceptions of what this country is really all about? Well, I traveled around parts of the country I don't normally yeah. go to. I went to Haines, Alaska to look at the, the American bald eagle. I went to rodeos and, and Cody and Cheyenne, which I had never been to in terms of rodeos before. So I learned a lot about America that I didn't know before, but it did confirm my impression that Americans know relatively little about history. And even somebody like me who thinks he knows a reasonable amount about, about American history realizes how little I knew. Because on every one of these, um, these symbols, I knew a lot less than, the, than I think I should have known and a lot less than I wanted to know. And hopefully the people that watch this series will learn a little bit more. But to be honest, what's the point of the series? Nobody is gonna become a historian by just watching this series. And all of a sudden, nobody's gonna become an expert on America. But it's designed to whet the appetite of people to say, well, I, didn't, I knew a little bit about the Hollywood sign, or I knew a little bit about Fenway Park, but what I knew was not quite right. Now I know more. Maybe there are other same things in the United States I should learn more about. Maybe I should read more about history. And in that regard, I wanted to point out that in 2000, uh, there was a National Science Foundation commission uh, that was a very good commission talking about the importance of science education. And they, they developed a STEM, an, an acronym called STEM science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And it was said that we need to have more STEM education in this country if we're gonna compete against the Chinese. We used to wanna to compete against the Russians, now we compete against the Chinese. Well, the truth is uh, it worked because that acronym scared a lot of people and the, and the, uh, into making certain their children would, educate, would be majoring in STEM subjects and making certain that employers knew that they majored in STEM subjects. It was thought to help you get a better job and so forth. The result is that the majoring in history has gone down dramatically. Less than 2% of American history, uh, college students now major in history. And the result is people are knowing less about our history. And I just wanted to point out to people, as I try to do in talking about this, that people that major in history or politics or government or English, they can get good jobs too. When I've interviewed people at Carlisle over the uh, 40 years, I never asked people what they major in because I don't really care. It's other qualities I'm interested in. So the major that you have is not uh, so important to me, at least. And I hope we can get a hog across the message that you can major in history or learn something about American history, and it's not going to make you a less effective person. 
So David, I, I need to let another audience member ask a question. This one comes from Everett Dennis in Oregon, who asks, is there a way for shared values and majority views per public opinion to reduce the dogmatism of partisanship in contemporary America? Well, of course, if I had the easy answer to that, I'd be in Iowa, New Hampshire. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I'm not going to go there. Don't worry. I'm too young to run for president. I'm only 73. So um, at that age, I, I, I wouldn't be qualified. I'd be not experienced enough. But to be very serious, um, the money in our, in our political system is so significant that it, it just drives people to the left and the right. So you raise money in politics by appealing to the far left and the far right. You don't raise money in politics by saying, I'm going to be right down the middle and I'm going to give everybody on each side a chance to, to express their views to me, but I'm going to try to come up with a compromise right down the middle. That doesn't get very far. Um, and members of Congress tell me that all the time. I host a dinner in front of members of Congress once a month on American history where I, get, I interview a great historian, most recently, let's say, uh, uh, John Meacham about his new book on Lincoln. And members of Congress are, love to come because there's no press there. Nobody can see they're fraternizing or sitting with people from the opposite party. Um, it's not a fundraising kind of thing. And it's, it's, it's something that members say it's the most enjoyable thing they're doing as, as a member of Congress. And I don't do that to pat myself on the back. It's just that it shows that there's so little um, bipartisanship and such a little opportunity to come together that when one event is like that uh, in Washington, D.C., people really enjoy it. I think unless we eliminate significant amounts of money from politics, I don't think we're going to change the system anytime soon, unless there's a national crisis, which I don't want to have, or some emergency like 9-11, where we come together temporarily. But I think right now, money is, is such an endemic problem that we have, and I, I just don't see it changing anytime soon. And inequality. Um, David, President Biden has announced his re-election bid. You served in the Carter administration. We're now witnessing incredible rifts. Um, what do you see the as a historian now, do you see us as in unprecedented times, or do you see this moment of rifts as just one of the phases in American history? At any given time, people are always saying this is the worst time in history. At any given time, people are saying the young generation is not going to be good enough. You know, George Washington's father used to tell him, uh, your generation isn't going to be good enough to really lead this country and so forth. So this has been going on for thousands of years. Uh, right now, uh, I do think that we have some real challenges in the country. We always have had challenges. Uh, but I like to remind myself and remind everybody else, it's not the Civil War. During the Civil War, 3% of the population of this country was killed during the war. And the country was, you know, in, in a violent uh, uh, type of uh, civil war that was uh, that really probably took a generation or two or three to really overcome the, the effects of. So we're not in that situation now. People are not shooting each other in the Congress or things like that, which did happen. Um, and people are fighting each other in the Congress during the Civil War period of time. We're not having that now. But I do think it's a situation where because of social media, everybody knows everything that's going on instantly, and it's easy to inflame people quite, quite readily. So I am worried about it, but I don't think it's the worst of all times. I have a, a question about a potential candidate. Uh, you know, Glenn Youngkin, he was co-CEO of the Carlisle Group, I think, for a while. Um, do you think he's going to jump into the race? I haven't asked Glenn about it. I've consciously avoided uh, asking him about that. Um, he was co-CEO uh, here. I hired him about 35 years ago or so and did a very good job at Carlisle. Um, he left to go into public policy, which he had a real interest in. I can't tell you what, whether he's going to run or not. I just don't know. Uh, but I know he's. Uh, you know, he really enjoys what he's doing and, and, and um, I wish the best uh, for him. 
and his family. It's a wonderful family with his, his four children and his wife. Uh, terrific family, but I just don't know what his political uh, lean, uh, interests are at this point. And he's very young. Remember, um, he could run in 20 years and be younger <laughs> than any of the likely leading candidates right now. Um, and so um, he's got a long time to go. David, you wrote a whole book about leadership. And I wonder if you look around and see great leaders out there today in politics, and if so, who? Well, it's easier to write about leaders who have passed away because, um, it, you know, you, you, it's, you don't uh, upset people so much when you talk about people and praise them. I think there are some great leaders around the world, and some have now stepped back from this, uh, the, the front stage. I do admire greatly um, uh, Angela Merkel. She's obviously stepped back. I think she did a wonderful job for Germany and for Europe quite some time. Um, I think that um, my former boss, Jimmy Carter, was not a person that was well uh, liked by as many people as I wished were the case when he was president. But I think in the ensuing 40 plus years since he left the presidency, he's shown what moral leadership can be, and he's shown uh, what a former president can do. And former presidents um, have one of the best jobs in the United States, which is to try to direct public policy in a, in a good way without having to worry about getting elected. And they have, um, you know, I, I think the former president done very good things. And Jimmy Carter is probably the role model for that. So he's somebody that's certainly worth uh, admiration, in my view. What a, a great note to lead on with that, leave, leave you on with that note about moral leadership. Thank you. And congratulations, David Rubenstein. Thank you for joining us today on Washington Post Live. Thank you very much. And my pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.